Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 91, Edith Beardson, Litigation Science After the Knowledge Crisis. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Edith Beardson. Edith is an acting assistant professor in the lawyering program at NYU. Edith's research interests are in the use of scientific evidence in civil litigation, as well as empirical legal questions. Our podcast today features Edith's new article, Litigation Science After the Knowledge Crisis. It's forthcoming in the Cornell Law Review. In it, Edith discusses the replication crisis that has torn through the social scientific world over the last decade. She explains the reasons for the crisis, as well as how those very same problems appear in the scientific evidence that we frequently find in the litigation context. Edith then explores what the legal system should do to deal with those problems. She reframes the role of judges and lawyers and tries to empower judges to be more effective Daubert gatekeepers. Edith, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Before we get started, you are, of course, a relative newcomer to the Legal Academy and you'll be on the academic market at some point. So I'd like to give you a chance to introduce yourself more broadly to the evidence community. What are the kinds of legal issues that you're interested in and why? Thank you very much. I really appreciate that opportunity. I'm interested in issues of evidence and specifically issues of scientific evidence and science in the courtroom more broadly. I have found in my research so far that that very frequently intersects with issues of civil procedure. So that is another one of my main interests. And more broadly, litigation culture in general. What is it that is not specifically an outcome of rules or laws that nevertheless affects how things are done in the courtroom? Your article begins with a discussion of the knowledge crisis or replication crisis in the social sciences. Tell us more about what happened and exactly what that crisis was. Sure. This was a crisis that began almost 10 years ago now, initially in the field of psychology. There were a number of very influential studies or studies that made a big splash in the field of psychology that people started to look at. And when they did so, they realized that these studies were based on flawed research methodology. The first thing that was noticed was that some of these studies could not be replicated. So when another research group tried to redo the study, they would find different results, or they would find results that otherwise deviated from the initial results. This was disconcerting, and so some scholars started to look into the causes for this. It took a while to really get to the bottom of this, but over the years that followed, so this is in the early 2010s, A number of groups really looked at this in depth and found a number of root causes that underlay a lot of the problems. And from here, the issue spread from psychology to sociology to biology, even medicine, a lot of different academic fields that realized that they had all been relying on methodology 
that turned out to be fundamentally flawed. And I just want to be clear that what I'm talking about is not specific methods, so not specific techniques or machinery or anything like that. The issue had to do with how research was set up, how decisions were made about the steps to be taken during a research study, and how much flexibility was allowed to remain in that process. Can you give us an example of one of these findings that was difficult to replicate? Sure. One very famous one that a lot of people will have heard of is a study by Amy Cuddy and a number of co-authors. They showed or they purported to show that taking on power poses, what they called power poses, so Superman poses, Superwoman poses for a few minutes, increased people's confidence, increased people's security as they would go into a meeting, for example, that they were nervous about. This was something that was a very popular finding. It spread all over the internet. I think a lot of people really loved that result because who wouldn't want to have some kind of trick to take with them into an interview or before they give a talk and feel more confident about that. But when other groups tried to replicate the study, they just couldn't. A lot of different groups have tried this. I think it's dozens by now. And the results were just all over the map. They would not turn out the same way as the original study did. What was the cause of the replication problem? You said that it was primarily due to the way that research was set up. What were the researchers doing that created this replication problem? Right. So there is a big difference in outcomes and in the reliability of outcomes that depends on how research is set up. If you compare two groups of researchers and one group lays out their hypothesis in advance and lays out all the steps in advance that they are going to take, how they're going to collect the data, how they're going to clean up the data, how they're going to analyze the data, that's what one group is doing. And then the other group Instead of doing that, they leave a lot more open. So they have a general sense of what they're going to look at, but they're just going to gather some data, look at the data using a number of different techniques, depending on what they find, possibly gather some more data and look at that. That's what group two is doing. When you compare the outcome of the two groups, it turns out, well, the big lesson from the replication crisis is that it turns out that the first group will have research results that on average will be much more replicable. The reason for that is if it is possible for a researcher to try out different methods and then pick and choose between the results, continue only with what works and discard what doesn't work, and then report only what worked, there are huge reliability concerns with that. Researchers often present their results along with confidence figures. So for example, p-values are a very common way of doing that. Confidence intervals, reliability intervals, these are ways to express how much confidence a reader should have in the results. And it turns out that when researchers pick and choose in what they do and make decisions along the way as they progress in their research, these confidence figures are very much inflated. So you see a research result with a low p-value that should normally tell you that if someone were to redo the experiment, gather new data, and redo the experiment exactly the way the initial researcher did, there is a pretty good likelihood that you should get the same result. That is not what happens when a researcher used those flexible methods and left a lot of what I call in the paper analytical flexibility in the research study. As soon as there is analytical flexibility, reliability goes down. That is the bottom line. 
So I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here. Assuming that we understand that we want to get rid of this flexibility and that flexibility creates problems, we create a very constrained way of doing scientific research. But it seems that this constrained way of doing scientific research is a bit counterintuitive, or at least it seems to run against our instincts, which is, well, we conduct some studies, we learn some things, and then we change our mind and try to learn new things using the new hypotheses that we create. So how is it possible for scientists to avoid this kind of flexibility? Right. I think that is a very important question. And the goal is not to eliminate curiosity, right, or to eliminate exploration. That is very much a goal of science that should be maintained. The problem is, though, or the problem arises when researchers gather data, use it for exploration, and then use the same data to also present results or come to conclusions. One of the lessons that came out of the replication crisis is the importance of separating exploratory research from confirmatory research. In other words, to do science properly, what a researcher should do is use any data he or she wants to do exploration generally, try different methods, try analyses using different parameters, slice and dice the data any way they want. But then once they come up with a tentative hypothesis or some kind of pattern that they are interested in and would like to explore further, they should then do a separate study on new data where they lay out their hypothesis in advance, lay out the steps in advance that they plan to take, and then take those steps on the new data. That way, the confirmatory study is separated from the exploratory study and will be much more reliable. Great. So what we need is a separation between exploratory and confirmatory. How did the scientific community address this problem? How do you make sure that you do, in fact, have that separation? So in science, there have been a number of steps that have been taken. There's still a lot of discussion going on, I should say, about this. Different fields are still taking exploratory approaches even to this. But there is a broad consensus about a few steps that should be taken. And these steps are increasingly being taken. One is to pre-register at least confirmatory studies in advance. A researcher can do any exploration they want, possibly even without pre-registration, because it's fairly harmless so long as nobody thinks that the results that come out of this are actually results that anyone should be relying upon. But once the researcher has formulated a hypothesis and some plan of attack, a plan to actually carry out the study, what they should be doing is lay out that plan, pre-register it. Some journals have submission platforms for this. Some of these are public. Sometimes they are not public. There are ways to pre-commit, in fact, to a research study. Then actually carry out the study as much as possible the way that was laid out in the pre-registration report. And then report the results of that, including the fact that the study was carried out according to the steps in the pre-registration plan, or that there were deviations from the plan, in which case the researcher has to explain exactly why there were deviations, what happened that made it necessary to deviate from the original plan, and justify why that was necessary, and also why the way they deviated was the correct way. The really interesting move I think you make in your paper is not just to point out 
that this was the problem with the scientific studies and then suggests that therefore judges and lawyers should be aware of it. And there's no doubt that we as lawyers all should, but what you then do is you take the replication problem and you use it as an inflection point to help us think about how we can improve gatekeeping under Daubert. So what are the lessons that the legal system can take from this? I think you put it exactly right. I think at the very minimum, we should all be aware of this, but I think that really doesn't go far enough. One of the main problems of the issues uncovered in the replication crisis is that once research results are published or submitted to a court in the legal case, there is no way of knowing to what extent these issues of analytical flexibility have infected the end result. So in other words, by the time we get to the gatekeeping function of the court as it is currently performed, an expert will have submitted a report. They will probably have been deposed. But at that point, there is no way to tell how much analytical flexibility there was in the process and how reliable the research results actually are. And so that means that we need some processes in the system much earlier than they currently exist. So well before the court gets involved, well before even currently the other side, opposing parties get involved, there needs to be some way to constrain the flexibility that exists in many experts' experts work in the court system. And so what I propose is something that is quite analogous to the pre-registration system in the social sciences, whereby very early on, when the expert is retained by a party and starts to formulate a plan, that plan is shared more broadly than just between the expert and the retaining party. And what that could look like, it could take several forms. It could be an exchange with the other parties. It could be an exchange with involvement of the court. But the main function of that exchange is to commit the expert. So it is a commitment device whereby the expert is forced to present a hypothesis up front and a plan for the research study that the expert plans to perform or the analysis he or she plans to perform so that there is no room or much more limited room for changes along the way and for selective reporting and for the kind of reporting that comes with inflated sense of reliability at the back end. And so what the court's role would be, ideally, I think, is a facilitator. It would be much more a facilitator than a gatekeeper. It would still retain its gatekeeping function at the back end because ultimately it is up to the court to decide whether evidence gets to the finder of fact or not. But the court, I think, has a very important role in creating the conditions and creating the litigation culture that allows for the creation of scientific evidence that actually will meet the scientific standards of reliability that we needed to meet and that will have the characteristics that allow the court to tell once it gets to that gatekeeping step whether or not it meets those standards. To my mind, this also becomes a bit of a mechanism for addressing what I think David Bernstein is known for calling adversarial bias, this ability of parties to shop around and pick experts that have the answers that they like, all the while suppressing experts that they don't like. In a sense, I think you've converted part of the admissibility problem in Daubert 
into a procedural problem. Is that a fair description? I think that is fair. And I think you are pointing out something interesting, that there is an ability that parties have to retain different experts or to try out different experts, have them do some work, and then present only what works. This proposal would address some of that. It would not solve every issue in every single case because some problems are just too easy to solve. Some analyses just don't take a lot of time. And so an expert could easily just do it, then pre-register it and redo it again. But there are a lot of cases in modern civil litigation that require a lot of data, often data that has to be retained from an opposing party. And not only a lot of data, but also a lot of hours and a lot of expense. And so it is quite a stretch to think that parties would go through all that effort and expense if they don't know that their expert will be admitted at the end and then have to redo it again. So one thing that this proposal would help ensure is that parties think about what kind of expert they want to retain and then retain one and then pre-register what that expert is going to do. And then that expert is bound to a certain extent. There can still be variations along the way, but those variations have to be explained and have to be backed up. And a court that is familiar with the issues and is aware of the flexibility issues that it should be looking out for should be a great help for a court like that to have the pre-registration report and to have the parties thinking about it in those ways and to have the expert commit up front. I think there's no doubt that these reforms would limit what attorneys do now and also impose a lot of responsibility on judges. What are your thoughts on the likelihood that judges and attorneys would be amenable to these changes? Will judges want this kind of deep involvement in the production of the scientific evidence? And will attorneys tolerate these restrictions? I think that is a very interesting question that requires a lot of discussion within the system. I very much intended my paper to be a starting point for a discussion along those lines. That will involve questions about what exactly a pre-registration stage or some kind of early proceeding will look like. I think parties and courts alike have an interest in creating a judicial system that actually finds truth. There's a lot that has been written about the differences between science and litigation and how in science it is uncontroversial that truth finding is a very central goal. But I don't think that anyone completely disputes that that is a goal of the litigation system as well. And so to the extent that we want outcomes of litigations to be correct and to be based on evidence that is actually reliable, there has to be an interest in creating the conditions that actually allow for that. For courts, how much they have to be involved really depends on what kind of approach they decide to take to it. In many cases, I believe it will actually not be that much more work for a court to have these proceedings early on, because whether early or later, the court will have to engage with some of these issues. And especially at the early stages, when we're talking about exchange of information between the parties and possible registration with the court, whether under seal or publicly, the court won't even necessarily have to do that much other than ask the parties to engage in this exchange and receive the documents and make sure that they do it. But it is not necessarily the case that the court will actually have to do anything with the documents at that stage or perform any analysis. 
I do argue in my paper that there are real benefits if the court were to take a more active approach. An early stage like that could come with its own adjudicative process. The court could at that point early on in expert discovery already look at the experts' plans and make some kind of determination. For example, it could find that if the expert were to proceed and perform the study exactly the way the expert has laid out in the pre-registration document, that evidence is presumptively admissible. There could be a presumption that way, and that would be very beneficial to parties in the system and possibly the court. It would save time on the back end. That, however, on the whole, would probably take more of the court's time, of course, especially early on. And it may not always be time that gets recouped later because, as we all know, a lot of cases settle before they get to the later stages of the proceeding. As for the parties, there is quite a lot of literature out there about how relatively recent moves in evidence have made it more difficult, especially for plaintiffs, to bring their cases. Margaret Berger has written about how there is a class of cases that probably cannot even be brought currently because these cases can only be brought with expert evidence and it is very expensive to acquire. And so a plaintiff who has no security that the expert evidence will be admissible will be reluctant to actually retain an expert and start the process. It's just too expensive and too risky. So parties like that should be really interested in early proceedings relating to expert evidence because if early on, before their expert does any of the work other than making a plan, they can have some assurance that if the expert follows the plan, the results will ultimately be admissible. That enables them to find litigation finance possibly or to proceed self-funded but with more confidence. And so for them, it's really interesting potentially. But I think there are benefits on the defendant side too. Defendants, if they get involved early on, they can actually play a role in shaping what the evidence will look like. They can critique the plaintiff's methodology before the plaintiff's experts actually start work. And so they have more of a role in limiting discovery, potentially focus on what really the issue is, and also importantly, focusing on the method rather than on the results. So it can be a much more productive discussion, potentially. And depending on what these early proceedings look like, the defendants might be able to get some actual concessions out of it too. In other words, if the plaintiff commits to a particular methodology and a particular research plan, they also commit to not following some other plan. And so the defendant knows exactly what they're up against, and they won't be surprised later with additional expert discovery and additional expert result that they were not prepared for. There is a limitation there. And I should say about all of this that I'm talking about it in terms of plaintiffs and defendants in this way, only because expert discovery often starts with plaintiffs. They tend to have more experts and defendants often can wait a little bit later. And so that's why I'm talking about it this way. But of course, in some cases, also defendants start with expert discovery and retain experts earlier. Final question for you. What's next for this project? Any future directions that you're planning to take the work? I think there are a few things that could come out of this. One is there has to be more discussion, I think, about what form these early proceedings take, what the most feasible way is of implementing this that works best for parties and for courts. There are a lot of ways this could be implemented, and I think there has to be more discussion about that and more digging into that. One slightly different thing that came out of this for me as I was working on this was 
questions about the party's ability to make their case the way they want within the current system. There is this notion of gamesmanship out there that sometimes is valued and sometimes is not valued. Sometimes when we try to change how litigation proceeding is done, sometimes there is pushback in the nature of, well, but this, doesn't this constrain the way the parties can make their case the way they want? And that is true. And so to some extent, there is a value in the legal system that we assign to that. The value of parties being able to play the game by the rules, but still play the game to some extent. And then there are other situations where gamesmanship is considered a negative thing, something that is uh, almost crosses the line into cheating, parties getting away with things that they shouldn't be getting away with. And so one thing I plan to look at is what the dividing line is between those two. In what circumstances do we value the flexibility in the system that allows parties to do their thing? And when do we not? When do we think that that is actually uh, something that should be stamped out? Well, Edith, thanks for taking the time to talk about this intriguing new take on how to improve gatekeeping. Great having you on the show. Thank you so much. To me, the various statistical problems at the root of the replication crisis have long served as a broad cautionary tale. There's little doubt that modern statistical methods are extremely powerful. They allow us to make rigorous inferences, and they enable us to detect phenomena that are far beyond our unassisted capacities as human beings. But this power comes with a definite fragility, And that is something that we as lawyers, we as consumers of those statistical inferences, have to remember. Statistical methods require assumptions, and those assumptions can be easily violated through carelessness or even encouraged by external incentives. What I've always liked about Edith's article is that she not only highlights these dangers to legal actors, but in fact turns the cautionary tale inward on the legal system itself. The adversarial process, too, is powerful and fragile. Powerful in that it creates helpful incentives for each side to present its best case. Fragile because without appropriate controls, the adversarial system risks distorting the truth rather than helping in its recovery. That's why judges are critical in their gatekeeping role. The adversarial process simply doesn't work by itself. That leads me to my final point. Philosophically, it seems that what Edith is proposing here takes the idea of discovery and managerial judging to its logical conclusion. In her paper, Edith is actually so bold as to say that the judge under her scheme becomes less gatekeeper and more facilitator. Judges can't just wait until the end of the exercise to engage in their gatekeeping powers. Instead, judges need to manage the system of evidence creation in order to ensure the right grist for the mill. It's sure to be an uncomfortable position for judges, but one in accord with this modern age of discovery settlement, and managerial judging. As Edith realizes, this modern structure is in tension with the perhaps romantic notions 
of drama and gamesmanship in litigation, where the lawyer serves as something of a champion. But think about discovery. Historically, there was drama and gamesmanship in surprise witnesses and surprise testimony. And discovery has changed all of that. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Weir. Thanks also to the Faculty of Law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who hosted me during the first half of 2020. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.